So last week's message, I'd, I'd like to do just a, a very quick review. It was entitled, The King's Speech. And it was from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Uh, very familiar words. The last words in the Gospel of Matthew. And I think the reason that they are the last words is that they are there for emphasis. It's almost like in order to hear an echo, you have to stop talking. And Matthew puts it right at the end so that the silence over all of these centuries, we could hear the echo of Jesus' final words to us. These are words that tell us why we're here. What is the purpose of our remaining here? What are we to be doing? And so here are the words. I'd like to read them uh, to you. I'll begin in verse 16, Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is often called the Great Commission. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably heard many a sermon on this passage. The resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus deputizes his disciples with a mission. This is what you are to be doing in my absence. And he begins, though, not with the mission. He actually begins with who he is. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By virtue of his death and his resurrection, God the Father bestows upon Jesus spheres of authority that he, up to this point, had not exercised. And we got into how he had exercised authority, but the sphere of it had never been as all-encompassing as it was now. The Father grants to him authority in heaven. There isn't a spiritual realm where he is not now reigning, ruling. On earth, this is the, the world that we live in. Now, every inch of this universe over which, as Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper famously said, Jesus says, mine. It's all his. He is ruling. He is reigning. He has authority over everything, everybody, everywhere, all the time. Therefore, since I am who I am, go and make disciples of all nations. There is the essence of the mission and the imperative verb in there is make disciples. Make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. It is somebody who has repented of their sins and has professed their faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for us, dying for our sins, dying on our behalf. And now the, the direction of my life, I'm a follower. Like if we played follow the leader, if I said, all right, now let's all go around the parking lot just so we know what a disciple is, and let's play follow the leader. Most of you would think that's stupid, but you'd all understand what it means, right? We get in line, and whatever the leader does is what the kids behind him will do. It's a great game. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that whatever he said, whatever he did, the attitudes he had, the priorities that he had, we're now following behind him, and we're doing exactly what he did. That's a follower. And Jesus says, go make that line behind me as long as you can. 
Make as many disciples as you possibly can. This is the prime directive. This is the main thing. This is why you are here. And this disciple-making mission, he says, has qualities to it. Go. If the nations are going to be reached, you can't stay here on this mountain in Galilee. It is going to require my disciples to go and to make disciples for the nations to be reached. Baptize them. That outward sign of an inward faith. Churches are to baptize and Christians are to be baptized. Right there in the Great Commission. And teach. Teach, 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 teach. And this teaching isn't just this pulpit or, you know, it's all kinds of levels of opportunity that we have to impress upon people the teachings of Jesus so that the goal isn't just to fill the word with, uh, the, the, the air with words. It, it has a means, it's a means to the observation of Jesus' commands. The goal of teaching, the goal of what we're doing right now, it's not so we all nod our head, yes, I heard teaching, I pulled the Great Commission. No. I could flap my gums up here all morning long, but if it doesn't make a difference in any of our lives, my own included, then this is a colossal waste of time. The goal is change. The goal is likeness of Jesus. And as you go, he says, remember that I will be with you always. And we see in the story that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and The presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is with us everywhere we go, indwelling us. That promise that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us as we labor to make disciples in this world. That was the essence of the exposition last week. What I then did did is I stopped and I said, okay, let's talk about this as a church. Because if the goal is to make disciples, we ought to ask ourselves, how well are we doing with that? And I said, if, if you can summarize the Great Commission with more and better disciples, and I think that's a fairly good summary, more disciples and better disciples. More is evangelism, better is sanctification or growth in the Christian life. More and better disciples. If that's the goal, how are we doing as a church? And what I said is, in my opinion, we are better at the, at the better than we are the more. Many people come to our church, and they may have a seed of faith, they may have some legacy of faith, and they flourish here. They grow. Many of you probably would say, I think, you've told me this, that you, that you came to our church, and it was like wind came into the sails of your faith, and you've been just like on an upward trajectory. And we love that. We want to continue that. We want to be that kind of church. But we are missing something if all we are is about the better part. It is the more part That is the start of discipleship. And the only way that there is a more that is going on is if the disciples who already are disciples are sharing with the non-disciples how to become disciples. In other words, that is the task of you, us. And I challenged the church, I said said last week, okay, let's go back in time. If I said, everybody stand. Now, when I say how long it's been since you have personally built a relationship with somebody, through that relationship, you shared Jesus. Okay? Two weeks, sit down. One month, sit down. Three months, sit down. Six months, I said, how long would it be before you, honestly, before God, could sit down and say, yeah, I did that. I've done that. 
That's a priority in my life. Here's my sense. There'd be a lot of people standing for a very long time. That's my sense. And if we're going to be about the more side, we got to get better at that as a church. we got to get better at that. And I threw down that challenge for us to get better at that. And I want to talk more about it, okay? More about it. So let's tackle this by, first of all, when I say the Great Commission, our mind so often just simply goes to Matthew 28, but there are other Great Commission passages in the Bible. So let's just survey these a moment, okay? Let's just survey these. If you have a Bible, uh, you, let's begin with John, okay? Turn to John 20. <clears throat> We're going to look at three other Great Commission statements here. I've called them the less famous, still inspired Great Commission statements, okay? John 20. Verse 21, this is, again, post-resurrection, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now, here's the key. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there's some complicating things in there. I'm not going to get into that. The thing I want to focus here on is the fact that Jesus ties the mission that he gives to us with the mission that God the Father gave to him. He says, as the Father sent me. So we see then that the first missionary wasn't William Carey or Adniram Judson. It was Christ himself, the first missionary, sent from God the Father into this world. He came and he, he loved us as a neighbor. He came in love and he gave himself. The best friend we've ever had is Jesus. Uh, greater love is no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friend. That was the love that Jesus had for us. He treated us as a neighbor. He treated us as, as friends. And he died for us. So that mission, commi Jesus commissioned by the Father to the world and now Jesus commissioning us. And so we see this Trinitarian sending and commissioning that we have the privilege of being a part of. And it is a privilege, okay? This is another thing that so often we miss out on. We're gonna get to heaven and realize I was so messed up with what I thought was really important, right? What's important? If you ask God the Father, it is the glory of the Son and the making of little Jesuses in this world through salvation. That's the big deal, Okay? That's the big deal. And we have the privilege of being a part of it. God has sent us on mission. Go and make disciples, just like Jesus was sent. All right, here's the second. Okay? Second Great Commission is in Luke 24. Okay? So I'm sort of going counterintuitive for you. This is backwards. We began with Jan, uh, John, and now we go to Luke. Okay, Luke 24, here again, post-resurrection, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, 
beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this is Luke now, okay? And if you know, if you know your authorship of uh, New Testament books or letters, then you know that Luke wrote a lot. In fact, if somebody said, if I have this right, somebody said, who wrote most of the New Testament? Most people go, Paul. But, the, but actually, Luke wrote more than anybody else. Luke and Acts, okay? Luke was like volume one. Acts is like his second volume. And what we find with, with Luke, his main theme here is seen here in this Great Commission passage. Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he connects the Old, Te- Old Testament revelation about the Messiah with who he is and this mission. He helps them understand the Bible, and then he exegetes the Bible in a kind of messianic summary and commissions them. Now, why is that important? Because, and this was obviously important to Jesus, so it needs to be important to us, because Jesus wants them and us to understand that what he is doing is not something radically different than the Old Testament, but rather it flows right out of the Old Testament, that the New Testament and the mission is something that God began way back, this rescue plan, way back when he said to Satan, in fact, that uh, you will bruise his head and he will, cru- or you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. That very first indication of the gospel, Jesus ties now what he is, who he is and the mission to what God has been doing in the flow of redemptive history and sends them out as witnesses. To say it this way, the mission of God flows from the word of God about the son of God to produce people of God. That's the mission, okay? Now verse 48 here is the key, and it's Luke's repeated theme throughout Acts. You are witnesses of these things. He doesn't say, you gotta go to seminary, you gotta write a systematic theology, He says, just go out and tell them what you've seen. That's what a witness is, right? We now call witness XYZ to the stand. And everybody understands that person's gonna get up and what are they gonna say? What are they gonna say? This is what I saw. I'm an eyewitness of it. And that's a powerful thing in the court of law. And when it comes to the court of the human heart, to be a witness, to testify to the things that you have seen, which they had eyewitness. Now we, through the scriptures and our own experience with Jesus and the gospel, we have the opportunity to similarly just tell people about what we have experienced. Okay? You don't have to know every answer. You don't have to have all the apologetical things figured out. It's great if you do. But you, as a disciple have a story to tell. And that story is your personal witness. And people can't argue. Well, they can, but they, it's hard to argue with people telling the story. Let me tell you the difference Jesus made in my life. Okay? You are witnesses of these things. All right. Here's our fourth passage. And this is in Luke's second volume. This is the book of Acts. Okay? So, just probably a page or two over. Actually, John's in the middle, I'm sorry. Gospel, and then a page or two over. 
Luke uh, writes Acts chapter 1. We, we call it the Acts of the Apostles. Many people complain about that, probably rightly so. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles, the story of the growth of the church. Acts 1, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives these words to the disciples. This is verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What do you hear there? You shall be my witnesses. That is another great commission. Go and make disciples by being witnesses about me. And the fascinating thing about those words is is that they basically form the outline of all of church history, certainly the outline of the book of Acts. Okay, what does he say? Jerusalem first, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And if you read through Acts, Acts 1 through 7, the gospel goes to Israel. Chapters 1 through 7. Chapter 8, the gospel goes to Samaria. And then we have in verse 26 and following, the gospel going to Africa, the gospel going through the ministry of Paul to Europe, and then all the way down to today, we have to the ends of the earth. It forms the outline of the story of God's work of redemption through the gospel in all of human history, and we're a part of it. Okay? We're a part of it. So to summarize now, Matthew 28, Great Commission, make disciples. John, you're sent. Luke, you're witnesses. Now here's the question. Are are these four different missions? Like, you all, okay, everybody leave now and pick the one you like the most. And so you walk out and you're like, I'm more of a Luke kind of Christian. I'm a witness. Like, well, I'm more of a Matthew. I'm kind of a going and baptizing type. And, you know, is that, no, 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 no. What's going on here? These are, these are four ways of describing the same mission that Jesus has given to us, right? They all kind of color it in so that we can know, understand what our mission is. So what is our mission, church? And I want to read to you now Uh, from our very own church constitution, okay? Very own church constitution. I have it right here. Tell me if this sounds, in light of what we've seen here, tell me if this sounds good, okay? To glorify God by making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who worship and exalt him in all things. We strive to fulfill this purpose as we devote ourselves to the preaching, study, and application of God's word, Seek the Lord in earnest prayer, experience the power of of authentic life-changing fellowship, and engage our community and the world with the gospel of Christ. What's that mean? Like, (laughs) amen? Is this why we're here? Okay? This is like the old Vince Lombardi. Gentlemen, this is a football right here. Okay, let's not forget what we are doing here. We are here to make disciples. It's right in our founding documents, and we've got to keep it before us, or some very bad things happen, which I'm about to get to in just a moment. More and better disciples. Yes, 
you know, you could say, what is this all about? It's about the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yes, that's true. That is the overarching purpose, and we can't miss it. But practically speaking, the purpose of the church and the purpose of our lives, hear me now, what is the thing that you are trying to accomplish, Christian, in your life? Now, my girls were up through most of the night. So a night of sleep tonight would be great for me to accomplish, because I didn't have it last night. But... So there I am, I'm, you know, killing time at 3 a.m. this morning. A lot of people graduated from college yesterday. I don't know if you noticed that, but if you look at Facebook, it's like all that. And some of, some of you were in escape rooms, but it, I, I digress. So um, I want to graduate from college. That's a great goal. Happy for you. It's great few weeks we got people graduating from high school awesome you're graduating from high school most people do it but awesome okay uh, I'd like to have a career I'd like to experience these things whatever what is your big purpose if Jesus was standing here and you saying if your redemption was bought with the, my blood then your purpose is to go and to make disciples. And I just wonder how many of us think that way about our lives. Maybe along the way I share, and my coworker maybe you know, comes to Easter with me, and I sort of feel good about that. But by and large, I've got these other things that I'm really thinking about. What would Jesus say to Bethel Church? Happy about the better. Have you forgotten about the more? So let's talk about the mission and Bethel Church. If you're visiting today, it's a little bit of a family chat. Okay, so welcome to the family powwow. No judging, okay? But let's talk about it. I want to say pastorally that we must beware of two things when it comes to the mission. Mission rift and mission drift. Mission rift and mission drift. Many a church has been torn asunder by mission rift and mission drift. When the purpose or the mission of the church slowly and gradually slides away from the vision as given to us in Holy Scripture. And things that Jesus said ought to be in the foreground and the things that you really care about move to the background. And minor things, less important things, that should be in the background, move to the foreground and are the things that subtly and slowly over time, the church thinks are the really important things. Rift and drift 
A rift is a fight for control within the church. A drift is the loss of any fight at all. No energy for the mission. Because people just don't care about it that much anymore. Yeah, we're about other things. Been there, done that. Rifts are terrible firestorms that typically result in church splits and new churches starting. Okay, there's been a disagreement about the mission, and so we're going to go and we're going to do it the way that we think it ought to be done. And you see this when you drive into, like if you're on a vacation and you drive into town, and as you're driving in, you see First Presbyterian Church. And a little bit further, you see Second Presbyterian Church. And you drive a little bit further, oh, look, it's Third Presbyterian Church. I have a friend that pastored 10th Presbyterian Church. That's the honest truth. 10th Presbyterian. How many things along the way happened to get to 10 in town? What happens? Well, Group A wanted to do X. Group B wanted to focus on Y. And Group C thought it was all about Z. And they thought so passionately about those differences, they said, we can no longer get along, we've got to go and be the church as we think God would have us to be. And this escalating argument about the mission doesn't energize the church like it should, it fractures the church. And rifts are always a danger. I've been through a few fissures myself over the years, even here, as Little parochial arguments develop about certain aspects of the mission. And what I'm saying is we got to be of one mind and we got to ground it in Scripture and understand that our mission is to make disciples more and better to the glory of God. Okay, That's what we're doing here. That is the foreground. Yes, there's other things, but they're background, they're minor. We don't want a minor thing to become the main thing. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. And we're talking about the main thing today. There are a thousand different ways and styles and approaches that can get you to fulfilling the mission. But if we don't know what the mission is in the first place, We're going to make the style the thing that we think is the most important thing, and then we'll fracture over it. It's not the most important thing. They will change over time. Things have changed since I've been here in terms of style and approaches and things like that. We've got to be ready for that. Historically, though, a more real danger is mission drift. And mission drift is when an organization that started off good, had a clear mission, biblical mission, slowly over time the mission drifts into some other thing that is not empowered by the Holy Spirit, is not a priority that God has, and slowly the people in the organization become more interested in the other thing than the thing that started them off in the first place. And slowly it becomes more important, personal comfort, the way I like it, secondary sort of things that 
become really important. And the church that used to be vibrant and they're filling up the baptistry on a regular basis because they're making more disciples, they're slowly they're not like filling the baptism that much anymore. And the energy seems to be absent from the church. And people scratch their head and say, what's going on here? Why isn't it like it used to be? And how many churches are meeting today like that? And they're living in the past glory, and they're like remembering the way that it used to be, but they are presently dead. What happened? There was a mission that at one time the people all together said, that's what we're about. And now... That is gone, and they drifted away from that prime directive that Jesus gave them and no longer stirs their hearts. Nobody fights about the mission because they don't care enough about it to fight about it, but they'll fight about other things. Start redecorating the church and find out what's really important to people. Preferences on worship or some petty thing. This is how churches die, and I don't want to sound wrong, but many of them need to die. That's what Jesus said in Revelation 2 and 3. I'm going to come take your lamp away. You keep this up, I'm taking your lampstand away. We're all better off if you don't exist. That's basically what Jesus says. If you continue in this path. And the vision is lost, and, and when a church is rifting, they are in the process of drifting, And the culture of the church moves away somehow from that prime directive. Here's another indication. Again, I hinted at this already. How do we react react, uh, to change for mission purposes? How do we react to that? Like, are we like, hey man, if it helps make more and better disciples, whatever. Or, I don't. That's different than I'm accustomed to. Now some of you right now are are saying, Pastor Steve's setting us up for some big change that he wants to announce. I don't really have one, okay? (laughs) Other than to say this, we better be open and ready for it if it makes more and better disciples. Amen? Okay? Why? Because that's what we're here for. Okay? We are here for that. And healthy things change. Like I look at my, 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 my daughters, especially my oldest, because I can actually talk in sentences to her. And I look at her, and she's growing. Like she's going to preschool in the fall. I can't believe it, you know. And she, I, look, I look at her legs sometimes. I'm like, I remember when it was like this, and now it's like this. And I say to her, I say, baby girl, could you stop growing? I like you just the way you are. And she's like, no, Daddy, I want to go to Disney and be a ballerina. (laughs) Now, is that unhealthy? Like, what if she said, okay, Daddy, I'm going to start taking drugs right now so that I never change a bit and don't grow at all. No, that's like unhealthy, isn't it? When, When we're like committed to status quo at all costs, that is a sign of a terrible spiritual disease. When we're healthy, we want to change and grow. And we love it when it happens. So let's avoid mission drift and mission rift. I gotta, oh man, I gotta keep moving here, okay? Secondly, we do what we do for the king. We do what we do for the king. 
Jesus didn't say, I have an amazing idea that I want to convince you all to, and come on. It's not like Shark Tank, where the people get on and they go, hey, I've got a better way of making the mouse trap. Come on and be aboard with me. I've got a vision. Jesus doesn't motivate us with an idea. He motivates himself with, or he motivates the church with himself. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. In other words, I am the most glorious, most powerful, most wonderful reason for you to get on board and to make disciples. He doesn't lay out a big strategy. He points to himself and says, I am Lord, I am king. Go and make disciples. The motivation flows from who he is. We do what we do because he is who he is. Not because he's got the best idea. Not because we sort of are sort of winsomely on board with him. No, he is God. He is king. And that love, motivation, relationship with him is what keeps us going. I love this quote. We, we, we need a greater, more captivating motivation than missional church. When the motivation for mission is mission, people revert to consumerism. However, if our missional endeavors are motivated by something greater, more certain than our oscillating passages for the advance of the gospel, then there is hope. And what is it grounded in? It's Christ. And the more glorious and more beautiful and more wonderful we realize that he is, the more enduring and hanging in there and sacrificial we will be for his mission. So if you find somebody who's not really super motivated about this, not super excited about that, I will tell you somebody who has a very low Christology, and when they die, that's going to change as they stand before him in all of his majesty and glory and regret wasting their life on things less than him. The church is built on Jesus as the foundation, as the chief cornerstone. I wonder what your life would say about your Christology. Can I ask that? I look in the mirror, I say it to myself. What does your time, your talents, your treasure, your energy, your passion, what do those say about how high or low you see Christ to be? We do it for him. I hardly have time to tell this story, but some years ago, my brother left for the mission field. And so we had our big sort of family final goodbye, like they're taking the kids and they're going to South America. And we're having this kind of tearful, cryful time at the airport, you know, hugging the little children and saying goodbye. And I was so emotional. I just hugged my brother. And the only thing I could, that I remember now, whispering in his ear, kind of choking it out, I said, for the king. Okay? For the king. I told that story at a thriving camp in Georgia. And they so caught on to that concept that they did this, and they've been doing it ever since. Show this photo. Oh, here it is. Look at it. You can go to their little store there. You can buy those things to this day. For the king. For the king. What sacrifice isn't worth worth it for the king.
What service isn't worth it? For the king. We do what we do because he is who he is. The last thing I'm going to say is that when Christ's mission is our goal, then gospel success and gospel wins is our joy. Now let me just get to this through a teaching of Jesus very quickly. He tells a parable. This is Luke 15. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, this is ironic, because last night, Jennifer lost an earring, and she's just been like, oh, this earring. And it's, it's you know, not a valuable earring, but she likes this earring. And so, you know, last night, we're in the car, and she's kind of going through her purse. She goes, oh, here it is. And I said, I'm telling the parable of the, t- the woman with the silver coins. said, here's the difference. That is a little piece of cosmetic uh, uh, jewelry. Maybe I shouldn't confess that to you all, but it's uh, cosmetic jewelry. Not real. Uh, For this woman, she has 10 silver coins. Probably represents her net worth. She loses one of them. So take your net worth, 10% of your net worth, that's what suddenly was lost in the coin. Now you know why she's scrambling to find it. It's not a piece of cosmetic jewelry. This is a substantial part of everything that she has is the loss of this coin. Notice, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Okay, that's a story we can relate to. Here's what Jesus adds. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay? There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. If there is one place that doesn't have mission rift and doesn't have mission drift, it's heaven. Because in heaven, they have God's priorities down. They know what matters. They know what's important. And Jesus says here, if you want to know, if you had a glimpse into heaven what it's like when a sinner repents, when, they, when the sinner becomes a disciple of Jesus, There is joy amongst the angels. The angels in heaven, they're dancing, they're singing, they're celebrating, they're going crazy, they're rejoicing over one sinner. Now I look at that and I think, really? One sinner? There's seven billion people on planet Earth, right? And I mean, every single Sunday, how many sinners are repenting and becoming, how many people are becoming Christians every day? You look at Africa and Asia and places where the gospel is just exploding, It must be a perpetual party in heaven because sinners are repenting all the time. But why are they repenting? That's what I'm getting at. Or not why are they repenting, why are they joyful? Because they understand the mind of God. They understand what is really important. They understand better than we do God's mission and rescue in this world. They understand better than we do what Jesus himself did leaving heaven and coming into this world and dying for us. And they see all of that from the pers- that heavenly perspective and when on earth a sinner repents, they get this is a massive thing. This is a cause for celebration. Let's be joyful. Let's have a party. And what I'm saying to you, friends, is this, is that if this is heaven's joy, it ought to be ours as well. Like if we're really about the mission, when there is a win in the mission, 
This ought to be the thing that makes us super, super excited and joyful. More than other things that too often seem to get more energy and gladness than the things that ought to get the energy and the gladness. So, I would like to practice with you right now this morning. Okay, let's do a practice run. I would like appropriate levels of response. Are you ready? Okay. Bears win the North Division. Now you don't know what to do, do you? <laughs> if you're watching the game and it's a last second touchdown thrown by somebody other than Jay Cutler, <laughs> now because he's not the quarterback, appropriate level of response. Go ahead. Let's go back a few months ago. The candidate that you wanted to win the election. And I'll, you pick which one that is, okay? But it's the one that you wanted. Appropriate level of response. Okay, okay, all right. You stayed up every Tuesday night working with your child in math, and he was named to the honor roll. Okay? Those are all hypothetical. Now I'm going to tell you a true story. This is a mission win, and we had this unfold this week in our church. One of our elders, Bob Kellerman, has a brother named Steve. And Steve lived a very hard life. Steve knew the gospel for decades. And Bob and his wife Shirley faithfully loved him, cared for him in their own home, cared for him spiritually, medically, etc. But Steve remained resolute against Christianity. One year ago, Bob and Shirley's daughter, Maria, attended services here at Bethel Church. Heard she herself in a Rebellion against God. Here's the message from Ecclesiastes. If you remember, Easter was Ecclesiastes last year. She hears the message about meaningless in life, meaninglessness in life and hope in Christ. And somehow the Holy Spirit used that in her life, truths that she knew already, but it took root. And she either became a Christian or renewed a long legacy faith that hadn't been active in her life and began to point her attention 
to her uncle Steve and began talking with him about now the difference Christ had made in her life. You shall be my witnesses. And over this year, they have continued to care for him, try to meet his needs as his health has been declining. This past Palm Sunday, April 9th, this is what happened, and these are Bob's own words. When we returned to the hospital rehab center, Steve called us to his bedside and said, you have to come close. I have something very important to tell you. I fought and fought and fought against Christ, but I'm ready to surrender. Help me. We then shared the gospel further, Christ's sinless life, his death on behalf of sinners, his resurrection, and our need to confess our sin and to receive Christ as Savior. Steve said he was ready and believed all of that. So Steve and I prayed, phrase by phrase, a prayer of confession, repentance, and reception of Christ as Savior. And when they were done, hold on, when they were done, they took this picture right here. That's the family, and there's Steve, new follower of Jesus on Palm Sunday. 24 days later, this past Wednesday, he died. And he is in heaven right now. I calculated, he lived over 22,000 days and was saved 24 before eternity. Like the thief on the cross, saved at the end. What do we say to that? And that family's in the service right now, and I hope that's an encouragement to them. Make disciples, Bethel Church, more and better. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Amen.